0: everybody welcome back to the beyond the peloton podcast i'm here as always with andrew vance from the choose the hard way podcast and this is a special very special episode for two reasons one to share a sode with choose the hard way so welcome if you're a choose the hard way listener and two we have patrick bro he's also known as lantern rouge probably i would say the most dominant at least dominant grassroots cycling media personality online Um, we can get into if you consider yourself to be like the paper of record at this point for for english language cycling media i think you might be but this is a huge get for us it's great to have you patrick tell us where are you, you we see you're very sunny I we're very jealous
1: on. we had a good chat the other day spencer and i thought you know why not go on the podcast because yeah we talked about some pretty interesting stuff and we can talk about cycling or media business but yeah i'm in i'm on the gold coast that's why it's very 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 bright behind my shoulder <laughs> like there's no block out blinds in australia like in europe or i'm not sure in america or, or canada if there is so 4 30 a.m you better be getting up in summer because that's when the sun blows through your, your window um so if i start sweating a little bit um just know that i've i've closed all the windows up for the the mic quality so um, i'm putting in the hard yards for this pod
0: well, thanks. It's that's that's a sacrifice that Andrew's gonna respect and respond to. I, I definitely know that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. We're gonna make you sweat. We want to see you cry. We're gonna have laughter. And also, before we kick off, if uh, you're tuning into this on Beyond the Peloton, you probably heard me on there bef- on here before. But if you're not familiar with my podcast, Choose the Hard Way is a podcast about how hard things build stronger humans. And I frequently have guests from the world of cycling. Not always I have people from the arts, uh, professional athletes from other disciplines, people from tech, business, venture capital, uh, the world of special operations. And some of the cycling guests I've had on in the past few months include uh, Chris Waugh, who was the is the chief innovation officer at Sutter Health, and famously rode his bike into me uh, to try to wreck me in a cyclocross race back in 2013. I've also had Dr. Kevin Sprouse, the team doctor for EF Education First Easy Post, and I'm going to be having Alexi Vermeulen and his creative collaborator, Avery, on in early 2023, many other guests coming on. And I'm a former Strava executive and journalist, and my byline has appeared in Rolling Stone, the Los Angeles Times, and probably every cycling publication you might have read in the United States and many in Europe. And uh, Patrick, really excited to chat with you today. have so many questions for you. i very curious about some of the things I've seen pop off on Twitter, both related to pro cycling and to what you and Spencer do.
1: Awesome. I can't wait to get into it.
2: And Well, I think we should start probably by talking about microphones. So don't you, Spencer? <laughs> yeah.
1: So you were right before
0: we recorded, Patrick, he's in Australia right now, but you live in Andorra, uh, I guess as your main residence, if t- let me know if legally you can't yeah. say that, but for tax purposes. Um.
1: No, no, that's good. Yeah. Okay. And or is my, is my main, <laughs> is my fiscal, fiscal domicile, yeah.
0: <laughs> and that, so th- that's a big move, obviously, from Australia to Andorra. I assume, um, I mean, we've spoken about this in the past just personally, but you did it for lifestyle reasons because it was too difficult to keep covering pro cycling from the Australian time zone.
1: Yeah, so it's like yeah. I had a, a sort of decision matrix of, okay, I I cannot, if I want to do this full-time covering cycling, I cannot do it from Australia. Okay, so where do I have to move? I have to move to Europe or probably where you guys, a lot of you guys, when I say you guys, I mean people covering cycling in in North America, in in Colorado is actually a really good spot time zone wise, tax wise, business wise. Um, So I had really a choice between sort of Texas or Colorado or uh, Europe on, on continental Europe. And I went with Europe um, over America just because I wanted to be a bit closer to the races. And so if there was travel, for example, say I have to go to the Tour de France route reveal or anything like that, or just get a coffee with someone, it's a lot harder to do that from from North America. Even though the time zone, I think, is better in North America to cover cycling in Europe. Uh, And so then it's like going through, okay, French, I speak okay French, but is that the best place to set up a digital media business? No, Spain is that the best place it will be in a few years they're introducing things to incentivize creators or digital creators to go to Spain rather than Andorra but that wasn't in place at the start of 2021 Ireland not on continental Europe so Andorra was the the one especially because if you you don't have a Schengen passport like you guys I presume or Australians or South Africans then it's a lot easier to just go to Andorra Sam, I'm I'm, so I don't do the, the pros All have residency usually, which is passive residency majority do some actually now have active resident, but majority they pay 50 grand euros, show their pro contract. Residency gone, bang, you got residency. I have a different thing, which is I had to start a business. So I have a company and I own company. I just submit a business plan to the government and to the banks. And you only get residency once the banks the bank opens a bank account for you so the bankers like hold the keys to residency and so once they're happy okay your business plan is legit They'll and you still gotta you gotta st- stump up some cash too um but yeah that's been the best move because like i'm on the right time zone it's really like it's really catered towards for a micro estate of course you can't get a lot of things like some things that you might want but if you want to get any bike parts you want to get your bike serviced you want to go hiking you want to get okay your my sony camera breaks i can literally drive down the road 10 minutes get one duty free in like he'll have like five in stock sony a73s or new sony's or he'll like i'll go and my, my mics busted or i want a mic for travel whatever and at the store in like the main street there's like 20 stores that will all have Mics and because people come from Spain for duty free, but also there's a lot of Spanish YouTubers living there.
0: And would you, so you have a digital media company? Would you describe yourself as primarily a, a YouTuber? You break down bike races on on YouTube.
1: I think that that was how it started, obviously, and then I've tried to spin it into a broader media company using the YouTube channel as like the engine room for it. Um, you know, so for example, I got rights agreements now. That's great, but what happens if? what happens if they go up 10x in value like you know sports rights change a lot they don't just go up like five percent they like they're really variable what if they go up 10x well then I need the podcast which isn't doesn't rely on the rights so much as a hedge and then now I'm doing consultancy work for some teams or a team and then the agent going to get the writer's agent license was another hedge in that like what if the media business sort of falls down a little bit what if there's an advertising apocalypse in 2023 um so i got like that's why i was like i need to have all these different things that are not strictly how popular my content is on youtube
2: so patrick a question for you and for spencer as well when you announced your relationship with yumbo visma quite a bit of activity on twitter about that and about whether you are a journalist or a creator or what exactly you are, I'm curious how both you and Spencer think of yourselves.
1: I never really thought about it. I'll, I'll let you answer, Spencer. I've already spoken a lot.
0: Well, just a little bit of background. I, because of actually your uh, co-host for Lantern Rouge, Benji, um, you guys do work for Yumbo via Lantern Rouge Media. Um, I think Lotto approached Benji about doing some work. He couldn't do it because he was already occupied and referred them to me a very nice thing to do thank you benji um and so i was doing breakdown work like video breakdown work for lotto last year and so and so when you announced right after the tour great tour for Yumbo, that you guys had been working for them there was like a lot of yeah a lot of thoughts shared on twitter and i'm over here sweating like oh man I'm in trouble like this isn't good people are gonna be pissed at me and andrew said you were like what are you worried about everyone hates you anyway you work with lance armstrong like you have nothing to lose but i thought it was a little ridiculous because you know it's like the, the most egregious example is like draymond green is a podcaster like a media personality in the nba and he's employed by a team the golden state warriors he's actually playing the game like I, I wouldn't describe myself as a journalist by any stretch of the imagination. W- would you describe yourself as a journalist, Patrick, or are you just more of like a content creator?
1: I didn't really. I haven't really thought too much about the distinction between the two, and the de- the definition of what a journalist is is going to differ between wherever you are. Um, I'd have to read like the Andorran definition for what actually strictly applies to me. But I think what I would change about that is for sure the the audience would have liked to I think a lot of the audience would have liked to have known at the time or in in advance and that's something we said like afterwards when we got all that feedback we then when the dust had settled a few weeks later we said okay this is how we're going to manage it in the future which is let everyone know this is what's up we're going to be doing you know tell you in advance okay we just signed x agreement it's going to last this amount of time or this agreement's finished we'd have no longer work for that team just so people know in advance um I think that was the major issue, not the actual. It was just people, as well It's like, could I have probably done the announcement a little bit better on my end? Yeah, <laughs> and the timing. So, like, if you're going to announce it like I did at that point of the Tour de France, it's going to like pop off on Twitter, isn't it? Instead of like a, I don't know, a November, maybe in the off season. I, there was always going to be blowback, um, but I think the way I did it as well um, amplified that.
2: Just an observation that I have is that. I think many people would like to think that their analysis or commentary about a sport was potentially so insightful that a professional organization, a team would actually pay them to provide those insights to the team. So I don't know what role that played in some of the blowback or the dust up we observed on Twitter. I think something that people are probably curious about, and you may have shared this on Twitter, but it would be great to share it here. Just what exactly do you guys do for these teams? And I'm sure you may be under NDAs, but what can you disclose about the work that you actually do?
1: So, like uh, competitor analysis. Like people think, just think about it logically, the big DSs of each team. They're sitting in the car. When the fuck are they going to watch a race? Yeah, exactly. They can't even watch. They can't even watch the race. They're in. That's not. That's not even their fault. It's not like a. It's not like a lazy thing or a competency thing. It's just the reality. They're in the car watching on a little mini screen. The, even the race they're in, they're not going to be able to watch it like that well, let alone their simultaneous races at world tour level all throughout the season. Not just, and when you add in the dot pro races where a lot of world tour teams or relevant riders are competing, they're on simultaneously. How, like, unless you think every DS. When October finishes throughout November, they go and watch every dot pro stage and world tour race in full in November, December, which they, like people aren't doing. They're not able to watch every race. So, Benji and I, fortunately, are able to do that. We're watching Etoile de Bessage stage three to see, okay, how does Mads Pedersen kick on a 700 meter, 6% ramp? Can he get over that? And, you know, answer yes, he's quite good on that finish. We're watching, uh, we're watching like a a 21 year old sprinter and a two-dollar I'm not watching every every race in full, but I watch the finish of every single world tour race. Uh not world Tour I watch the finish of every UCI race from like one one up. I'll watch the last five, ten Ks, include like even the races I kinda of make fun of sometimes I'll actually because <laughs> I'm a degenerate watch every single finish. Um and so that has a big advantage because there's not actually that many people watching every every race. And so you'd be like, I know these tendencies I know what he's good at. This climb's too hard for him. So you can build up like competitor profiles of specific riders that teams are going against. And also like I can build up videos of every single attack a rider has done in their entire career and have that on video and be like, okay, this is what's going to happen in the first like three minutes before he attacks. Maybe maybe there's no pattern. (laughs) Maybe there's nothing and you won't know or maybe this is what he looked like in the in the 5 minutes before he cracked you can you know build up things like that on on video so i think cycling's almost i'm not a data person like in terms of i'm not a i'm not a computer engineer or anything like that but i still think cycling's incredibly hard to model and so video and watching the races and using your the computer in your brain can have like huge advantages when most of the competition is not watching every single race or going back and watching every single watching the race again to see okay what went wrong
2: yeah and spencer, spencer how do you approach it
0: well just two things about what patrick just said there that this is like a bit mind-bending if you start to like think about it too hard but so patrick you keep all the races right you record every race you probably have like a library of every professional race that has happened in the last four
1: years no, no no not not the last four years um but there's you're a sport player and gcn player or gcn plus rather so like you don't even need to they have a repository now where you can just if you want to okay I, I think that happened then you can go and now even they have like a search functionality now i think gcn plus so you can like search up the races makes it a lot easier
0: but if, let's just say um you know time warner i think is their parent company let's say things don't go well i don't know they sell off gcn it gets shut down it's like, what the heck are we going to do? Like, oh, those races are just going to go away, like unless someone stores it. So just do that has happened. Yeah. Doing that in itself is a valuable thing for a team because yeah. in the second piece is like you could be a a successful baseball analyst and never watch a game. Like the funniest part of the Moneyball movie is they're like doing all this work. The game starts and Billy Bean just drives home. He's like, oh, I, I don't watch the games. Like, what are you talking about? Um. But you can't do that with cycling because as you say, it's not a math problem. It's not as easy to model. So you're basically just like a professional watcher of races because we have an odd setup where the coaches are driving cars at the same time they're coaching. And as Patrick said, no one's going to go back and watch race after race after race. So you just watch races and and try to find patterns. And I even remember there was a discuss, discussion during the tour this year where it's like, yeah, I can get you guys these breakdowns like right after the stage. But then they're, you know, like I don't, they were worried they wouldn't even be able to have time to watch it, watch like a short breakdown after the stage. Like that's how busy they are because not only do they have to do the race, they have to like move. It's like moving every day. You're so nomadic. You don't really have time to ever sit down and think about bigger trends during
1: a race as it's happening. And I think the – so I presume you talk about uh, sprint analysis for yeah. Lotto, if I have to guess, because, you know, Lotto is a sprint-focused team. Um, that's also another thing is video. How do you, you – I think you could – I think you they've done it in horse racing, which is modeling of how the group moves and the drafting benefit. And a horse race over 2,000 meters is extremely similar to a, to a cycling sprint in terms of they're going 60 KPH or 40 miles an hour. Um, aero is important. Drafting is important. Uh, slight differences is that cycling races accelerate at the end rather than decelerate, but it's very similar. And they have modeled things like that a little bit better. I think the mountains would be dif- the, 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 difference is of course that like cycling sprints also, they're not in a, the same course straight line, but video is hugely important for sprint analysis, like. The guys will it's, – it's the easiest to show on video. Did you drop him off at two, two, 20, 225 meters or 150? Because you got the two guys on the bus being like, that was a good lead out or, you know, no, you dropped him off too early. Well, you got to go look at the tape to say, okay, no, you, you left him. Ideally, you don't want a guy doing more than 10 seconds in the wind after he's been let out. More than 10 seconds, probably going to get beaten. And like Morkov was dropping Kav off last year doing four seconds (laughs) like you can't lose for like a total of 15 (laughs) seconds in the 2021 (laughs) tour. You can't lose from that position. Um but yeah some guys again dropped off like 18 seconds and like you got no chance against unless you're like there's a huge ability discrepancy, which if the tour there isn't everyone's good. So yeah a video is hugely important. But as you said uh Spencer like it's more important I think almost for the coaches because the writers like they're so tired imagine that they just had a bad experience didn't go to plan and then they go on the bus and then the next morning whatever they go, the video is up and here's what you did wrong here's what you, i mean it's, it doesn't have to be a negative thing it, ideally you have a team culture where it's a positive constructive this is what we're going to improve but still like first thing in the morning you know this is what we're going to change i think it's better to have it like the coaches actually see what happened and then they are Are equipped to communicate better with the riders this is what you guys need to change rather than forcing the riders to sit there mid grand tour and watch through it that's just my view on it
2: patrick follow-up question you mentioned how difficult it is to model what might potentially happen in a bike race which means that it's difficult to have pattern recognition yet i think what you just described is a great example of a pattern you have recognized which is hey if you can Put your sprinter in the position where they're only in the wind for four seconds they're gonna have to do less work they're in a better position to accelerate more rapidly and to win the race prior to you and people like you and spencer getting involved were those types of facts were they understood and were they being leveraged as precisely as they perhaps are now or is this a new innovation
1: i think the key is what you said just at the end of that question which is were they leveraged precisely and I think no but always of course for 30 years since the traditional sprint train was set up you know three decades ago they knew drop sprinter off late sprinter will win like it's not like they understood that of course but did they know okay 10 seconds is like a tipping point where if you just do more than 10 seconds you've got real problems and seven seconds he has like X percentage chance of winning or a much higher percentage chance of winning. No, like I don't think that's well understood. Um, I think, I think all the teams are trying to get their sprinter let out as close to the line as possible, but there's no like goal. And especially when meters are irrelevant, because as I said, like there's curves uphill, downhill. So like, Again, teams, teams are smart. Like they, gotta, they do have experienced DS. They're not like, oh, it's a, it's a false light uphill finish, so we can still drop him off at 175 meters. They know you've got to drop him off closer, but it's like, okay, but you've got to calculate the time it will take because the speed will be like maybe 52 kph. You know, the time you need to tr- actually drop him off, where will 10 seconds be? Okay, it's going to be at 110 meters, so that's our goal.
0: Yeah, you only and know the you- time after it's too late. So yeah, you have to try to figure that. exactly.
1: Out. that's just but that's guesswork, yeah, you're yeah. just guessing like, and it's hard, especially because climbing you can guess we like, we're really, really accurate on the predictions of the especially on the steeper the climb and longer the better for like accuracy, but yeah, sprinting is you you're really guessing.
2: Are you guys situated within the team within the context of a full stack high performance team, or is what you're doing complementary to what the team is doing? internally from a data analysis of performance data point of view
1: um oh like i i'm not like logged into their to the team's training peaks or anything like that i don't i don't have like access in that way um it's more it's tough it's sort of yes and no i think this year was more of a trial and then the next couple of years i think it will be integrated a little bit more um but yeah, I'm not like, no, I'm not working like full-time for for Yumbo, um, And we, we didn't work full-time for them this year either. It's more like, okay, there's this specific race. What's your thoughts on this? And we kind of did more than was expected, I think, in terms of what we provided.
2: So it's more the case that you are, are providing an input that the team then chooses what to do with yep. versus, like I've had the opportunity to work with the high-performance team for, world rugby and some professional sports organizations in the United States. And typically that's going to have perhaps psychologists who specialize in skill acquisition, people who specialize in biomechanics, skill transfer, and then you're going to have a strength and conditioning coach and then an actual position coach working with specific players. And then there also is going to be somebody looking at data um, from video capture and replay. So, but in this instance, it sounds like it's, not as aggregate or there's not as coordinated of an approach yet within professional cycling
1: i think that's right but the essence of what you said is correct like we provide an input advice as consultants this is what we think about race strategy this is what we think the competitors will do this is what we think you should do they can take the advice take it on board do it or not like for example people thought we knew exactly what Yumbo would do every stage like if you listen to the podcast throughout the tour that you couldn't, couldn't be further from the truth like i thought you know they maybe, maybe do x they do this and there's reasons for that like i'm we're not embedded in the team so there could be a myriad of reasons why they would be like thanks for your advice but for the xyz reason actually it's better to do this or for example i like i thought they were going to lead out well wow on the Champs-Élysées and then i was like <laughs> where's wow in the sprint and they were doing the victory i had no idea they're going to do the victory victory dance and not compete for the sprint um on stage 21 but yeah it's it's like provide advice on this thing and then of course yeah there's like the trainer um as well like the performance guys who are really really good like like actually maybe this guy's like you know not feeling so good today i don't i don't know i don't really i don't see that data i'm not as i said i'm not looking at like their physiological stuff unless i need to sort of post race
0: and that's new in itself i mean Yumbo is like the best team as far as front office, back room stuff, I think. Um, But, you know, think even, you know, I don't know, seven years ago, like teams would not have coaches or you you would just provide your own coach. Like if you're on a professional team, you hire an outside coach that's been brought in house mainly because it's, you know, easier to control naughtiness when it comes to doping, if you're doing it in house. But also like, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus here, but like Vodders used to coach the riders himself. Like he he would have like six riders that he was like personally coaching on EF. Like, that's insane to me. The man is like you should be coached by like a doctor or like a professional someone who is only doing that. Um, I think the results were rather mixed with Jonathan's personal coaching of team riders, but you know, we're like just now entering even the dark ages in cycling, but also. I think you'd be surprised in like the NFL, especially how bad some of the, the inter-intra-team training is, like the Cincinnati Bengals don't have a training facility that's indoors because it's just cheaper not to have it. And I have a friend that consults for NFL teams on, you know the type of player you want to draft, and he went to one and asked, like, so what's your, how do you guys keep an eye on every player's um, metrics, like biometrics?" And they're like, "Yeah, we weigh him once a week." And like this is an NFL team that's playing today, or not no, not literally today, but it's currently competing in the NFL, and they're only just weighing players once a week, and that's how they tell if they're in shape or out of shape or what they need to work on. so th- there's a lot to be advanced in, uh, in professional sports.
1: I actually think cycling's ahead of the curve in like performance culture, uh, not in race strategy and all and that is like a separate bucket, but in like perf- getting guys to go as fast as they can for their genetics i think cycling is actually that's where all the focus has been rather than on getting the best results for a guy's physiology through better race selection tactics etc but like the average the 10th guy in a grand tour now is going faster than the winners 10 years ago and there's more testing so like they're the perform like they're doing four altitude camps a year minimum like even teams who historically maybe you know like tactics wise is fdj the best no do they have a really good head of performance yes like their guys are all performing at a really high level they even improved like the lapier did a like improve the tt bike for them so like all the teams are trying to go faster now even historically the teams that were a bit slower to it you know and maybe sky were the the leaders like All the teams are going fast now.
2: Yeah. And in professional cycling, we've been gathering data on athletes from a, from a power point of view, which provides a more granular level of understanding of the athlete's performance, of course, than heart rate alone since the early nineties. So cycling has been one of the most data driven sports from an individual athlete point of view for almost three decades now. And from a team point of view, it sounds like a data-driven strategic team performance is a relatively new thing. And there's a lot of opportunity for improvement in that regard.
1: Yeah, I think it's still it's still really tough to predict what the top guys will do on a mountaintop finish in their A target. Because there's such few data points. Like... How often before the tour, like how often did Enric Maas do a forty-five minute climb to altitude in good condition, where he's motivated to go full gas with good pacing in a race? It's maybe like once. And so he might have improved a lot. It's really hard to accurately guess what everyone will do. Like I thought Renko would go super fast in the Vuelta. Like I thought he would, but there was a range um like for sure i thought there is zero chance he gets dropped in the first week zero chance but i i didn't know he'd take 90 seconds on stage six i was like what the fuck like him and Vine went super fast um so even you know that was really surprised. i thought pico Hanna would be group sprint but then two guys just really perform at a super high level above what i thought um and so like it is still tough to predict
0: yeah and think about your craig lewis profile fantastic by the way for outside magazine in 2006 thank you um and it was all just about you know it's like he's the next lance because his power to weight numbers are at a certain level and like that's been the obsession in cycling for over a decade now that you know it's just like as patrick saying bleed everything out of someone's genetics because you have to hit you know 6.2 watts per kilos for 50 minutes to be competitive and then what's been neglected is the basic strategic structure on, on how to actually race to maximize that fitness and you know, and gain an edge in ways that aren't just training and physiology.
2: It seems like another area where there could be further optimization, and I'm just thinking about Tom Dumoulin, Jonas Vinigo, and some of the other athletes who have maximized their genetic potential and then really suffered from a mental health point of view, is taking a different approach to mental health for these athletes to ensure that once they reach that level they can actually continue to perform at that level
1: i think Grant thomas is a great a great example of like and kwiakowski i think kwiakowski makes sure to take like a at least six weeks like properly off thomas has had a in terms of physiology a career year this year was he 36 years old um like, he's, had a really, he's, he's still going to be Ineos' probably best GC yeah, contender next year. And him and Roe, they seem to, you know, fuck around a bit and they don't <laughs> take it too – like, they, of course, they take the race super seriously, but they're not like – they're clearly like – you look at the Instagram stories or whatever, like, they're having fun on the December camp, you know. They're keeping it light. And yeah. if I had to guess, I don't think Grant Thomas right now is, like, hyper-stressing that he's 100 grams over this weight or whatever, like, because that's not sustainable. Um, he knows, okay, I've got to be ready for the Giro in May and he'll lock in in the two months before that. But obviously, he's still training and stuff. But I think that's for long careers, that's sustainable. Now, maybe, maybe if you want to hit like the high highs, that's you can't do that because it's so competitive. Maybe, maybe you need to for Dumoulin to win that Giro against Quintana, who was still performing at a high level when he's what, like a foot taller than him? Maybe if he'd taken the Thomas approach, he wouldn't have been able to have 0, that 0.1 watts per kilo extra and he gets dropped too much on the climbs.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. To be at the level, I mean, Tom Dumont's a big guy, naturally a big guy. To be racing at the weight he was racing at is just probably going to fundamentally take a mental toll that is perhaps unavoidable. I don't know if there's like a clean answer there. If there's a way to walk that thin of a line that he was walking and then preserve your mental health or quality of life. I'm kind of interested in like Valverde. I mean, if you watch that Movistar documentary, the guy is unbelievably lean. Like him and um Mark Soler are like sucking in their stomachs to see who's the skinniest. Yeah. And Valverde looks like a corpse almost. It's it's really yeah, shocking. Scary. It doesn't seem to it just seems like he's able to always be at a hundred and it never really takes a toll and he was able to do it for what, twenty-two years or something? I don't, maybe that's just an inherent mindset that not everyone has.
1: I think he's kind of similar to Thomas a little bit, a little bit different. But like having, now that I speak a bit better Spanish, like I can actually understand that, you know, I can listen to, the, watch their documentaries or watch their YouTube content, which isn't subtitled. And like Valverde, who's retired, is doing the full December training camp right now with the team. And like, he's flogging them on climbs too. Like apparently the guy's saying he's like pushing on the climbs. And I think he would come back from a race and he would just go train with his buddies. And I'm talking like accountants and whatever. They just go do a a flight group ride in Mercia, just chilling. Like, I think he, he's like the old school. I train, I get fit through racing and I'll just like toodle around at, at home Um in mercia and and then i'll I'll sharpen up for the big a targets and i think he just loves it as well and i also think like scary thought if he's going to actually be a ds but you can tell from that you see in the documentaries like he doesn't really he doesn't really think about the the race too much like he's not sitting there obsessing uh, before the stage like stressing out oh my god am i going to get dropped on this climb where's the pinch point of this he's just like i'll go race today i think that helps his longevity
2: yeah i think those those kinds of instincts i think are going to serve him well when he enters the gravel community here in the next three to six months
1: imagine valverde turning up to, <laughs> to <laughs> it's like 60 kilos he'd, yeah he'd be good there's like a he i reckon he'll do the gravel race classical high in um in january or february down in spain and then he'll be like actually maybe i like gravel and then canyon can you be like actually? Could you, would you like to be a sponsored gravel athlete?
0: <laughs> Man, we can only dream. And then uh this is who we're—that's our competition at the BWR ride, Andrew. When we go do that in the fall,
2: yeah, he'll like it'll be him. It'll be Sagan, probably Remco. I'm going to go ahead and make. I, I like hot takes. I'll I'll make one. Uh, I'll make a prediction right now. I think Valverde, gravel world champion, 2023.
1: As possible Sagan's actually realistic I reckon they might actually When when is that what month is it in September if, right po- post tour de France yeah I reckon there's actually a high chance specialized like do you want to do that that would be oh that'd be awesome
0: and I think now that you say that Patrick about his training that remote like when I was just coming up you know it was like a low 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 level professional um it was Yeah, you train to get in race and you like do, you just kind of do a lot of group rides in your, you know, in your training. And then maybe 2012, 2013, the sky model of every training effort needs to be a simulation of a race or you should never turn a pedal if it's not relevant to this training plan. And everyone started training by themselves and group rides kind of hit a low point, you know, and and that's probably effective, but it's not good for your longevity or your mental health at all. Like if you want to be, have a long career at a high level, that's probably not the best way to do it.
1: Guys are trying to ride like they're training in races now. They're literally like, oh, I don't want to go above this because my threshold X. It's like, even though they know they're not going to get dropped, they're trying to like, and even if like it puts them in a way worse position. Um, So like a lot of the young guys are just super obsessed with the power numbers to the point where in races, they're like race, like, if you're doing a full gas mountaintop finish, of course you shouldn't just like launch it from the base and blow yourself up. But like you might within that high adrenaline, high stimulus where you've peaked for it environment, the 20 minute best you might've done before is completely irrelevant. Like you, you might exceed that. Um, so yeah. And often like, guys, oh, this guy's doing so much power psyched themselves out. Like I think, yeah, the, the power numbers are a little bit, of course, when, you have a race plan okay penultimate climb want guys to go on the front do 5.5 between 5.4 5.6 that's different but yeah uh, the power stuff almost gets overrated a little bit over like actual race dynamics yeah
0: i i totally agree andrew and i ask each other questions on this podcast from time to time and i'm very excited to have a new voice here i'd love to lob a few at you if you're ready to take them Go for it. All right, and I'm I'm not a journalist. Andrew is a journalist, so mine are easy softballs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why why is it this is something we've discussed on and off the air a lot? Why is Remco Evenepoel not going to the Tour de France in 2023? Like, what's going on here? That's the Giro seems like a step back to the Volta in my opinion. If you're world champion, you've got to be at the Tour. That's my that's my unwritten rule about the sport. Yeah. Like at some point, you've just got to step up to the plate and do this. He's not that much younger than Pagachar. I don't really buy this. He needs to develop line of thinking. What do you, what's your answer here? What do you think?
1: I think there's a few reasons that they are, that are flawed. First of all, is what you said is that they think okay, slowly, slowly, you know, Vuelta, then Giro, then we'll step up to the Tour de France, which is like I'm not even sure that is a thing. Like people say, like say that's a thing, yeah. but like Pagaccia went Vuelta Tour. Even though he wanted to go to the Giro in 2020 and the team made him do the tour and he wouldn't, and then he would never have won the tour in 2020. Um, yeah. So there's like, okay, we need another stepping stone. When you're the world champ and you're like, let's say what, clear top five GC contender in the world, I think better than that. But let's say a clear top five, if you just won the world tour like that. Yeah. Like, why do you need to do another stepping stone? So I think that's flawed. Second one is, they think the team's not good enough, but I think it's better to learn, like see where the team's not good enough. Do are the rulers good enough? Is it the mountain train? That's a problem. Cause like it will, the race will show where your problems are. And I think if you win a soft Giro or it might not tell you that information of what extra rider you need. And then thirdly is impossible to know, but could be attendance money at the Giro. Like, he lives in Valencia. He's moved there. There's the Volta Valenciana around his house, like a five day race in start of February. And yet he's doing the Vuelta San Juan at the end of January. Flying to South America, to Argentina to do that race. Which is like sketchy too. Like you should see some of the finishes in that race. It's like, well <laughs> why is he doing the Volta San Juan? Like Um, it's not a better race than Valenciana. So I think Yeah, they're trying to and maximize those world championship stripes and i hope i hope they spin it into a top some top domestiques in 2024 because that must be the reason why they're doing this is for to think they build up the team and get some more money i don't know but yeah i, I don't think they think he can win the tour is another reason they don't think he can win it they don't even know how good he is uh,
0: yeah i i think the stepping stone is a fall it's a fallacy and i think tom dumoulin I mean, he didn't throw away his career. I mean, he had a great career. I would have loved to have Tom Dumont's career. But he didn't win the Tour, I think, because he faffed about so much. And do you remember he had this, like, obsession with not going to the Tour? Like, oh, I'm going to the Zero because there's time trial kilometers. And then actually never really worked out for him that well, except for the one that he won. And then he lost to Froome, and he got second, and then went to the Tour and got second, which is, he got fourth at Worlds. It's like the worst slash best result run I've ever seen. But if he just goes to the tour that year, I think that was what, 2018, he probably wins the tour. And yeah. then it's maybe a different career trajectory. So I think that's a huge mistake to just think that you have these stepping stones. And if you remember Bradley Wiggins and what was that, 2013, the Giro's not a slam dunk. Like you can get roughed up at that race.
1: Exactly. Like that's the other thing. They think, probably think, oh, okay, Giro, he'll walk it. But it's like if he doesn't win it, that's going to be tough yeah. mentally. And then, Oh, he he's young, he'll just win the tour. It's like, will he? Like, you, let's say it's just all probabilistic, right? If you're a top three GC contender in the world like him, you're going to have, let's say, a five to seven year peak. Every tour de France you enter, you have a 33% chance of winning. Like, that means there is a, a world in which if you only do it three times, you probably, I'm trying to do that in my head, but like, you will win one 50% of the time. Like, yeah. that's not a great. That's not great odds. Like you should every year when you haven't won it and it's your life goal if it is. I don't know what his life goals are, career goal. Then when you're in peak condition, which will not last forever, like you got to do the tour, I think. Like how long was most guys peaks and not that, you know, five to seven years. Lance was different. Lance, I think almost had a, a t- an eight to nine year peak. But even he, when he took the time off, I remember on if you look on 5312, Ferrari's website deep in the forums, <laughs> one of his responses is that Lance was physically at his best when he took the time off, but mentally he needed to take the time off. So whatever way, whether physically or mentally, it is tough to have more than five years straight at the top.
0: Yeah, I, I, do you, oh, so I agree, agree. Go ahead, Andrew.
2: Do you believe that Remco strikes me as a very confident person do you believe that he has been convinced that he does not have the ability to win the tour or do you think he himself does not believe he can win the tour
1: i mean maybe he just wants to win the Giro. maybe he just thinks he's got unfinished business with the race from 2021 is that last year when they rushed him back to do it Um, it's kind of funny how like on the one hand they've rushed him back to the Giro after the horrific accident and then a year later we're meant to believe oh it's like a slowly slowly like career progress thing like seems very two ends of the spectrum uh, no i think he you're right i think he he would know surely he can take it to to pagatra and vingegaard and Roglic. like he would he i think he he's confident he knows how good he is like he rode away from everyone at worlds and liege and beat Roglic I know Roglic may wasn't in top shape in the Vuelta but he still he destroyed everyone in that first 10 days and the race was over um even when he crashed so I think he knows like he knows numbers too like Remco also like he knows power numbers and whilst peculiar he knows what he did in the Vuelta in Norway he can compare that and I'm not he doesn't think oh I'm just gonna go ruin them in the Tour de France but I think he knows he'd be competitive and who knows maybe maybe i so in 2024 is like way better than all these guys maybe Khan otebrooks in 2025 is way better than everyone and maybe jorgen nordhagen in 2026 and seven is way better than everybody like bernal was one in 2019 it's not that long ago yeah. and so, you know he's he's unlikely to win a tour ever again
0: is he on the right team does he need to leave quick step
1: oh nah like probably any else were interested um i think quick step is fine like equipment is good rulers are good alaphilippe is a really good versatile domestique like as we saw on the vuelta before he crashed out yeah and here it's, you know, i think quick step i think the team itself is fine the equipment's good and they generally they're really good at probably managing tricky stages too because of all the sprint experience. They'll like their directors will know. Okay, this is a pinch point. This go this way around the roundabout, not this way. They'll be really like well above average in that. So I think Quickstep's fine. Um, is he getting underpaid? Yes. Like Lefebvre, I think wrote an article literally almost boasting about that two weeks ago, saying, "Yeah, if Remco left Quickstep, he'd be the highest paid rider in cycling." But he's here with me <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> i'm not sure you should write that <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah I, I think the team and is fine i think it gives him maybe in it'd be a little bit more but you it, to be a big change too
2: you mentioned bernal i had him on my list of questions why do you believe that he's never going to win the tour now
1: oh uh, because he wasn't he wasn't doing it even before the crash like you look at Tirreno Adriatico, uh, twenty one. Like he and Thomas tried to one two Pagatra, and they just got they got ruined. I mean, okay, he's he might not have been in peak shape, of course, um, but his numbers pre crash su- suggest that he wouldn't really be competitive with Pagatra and Vingard in the mountains. And so, if he's not competitive in the mountains, and then we add in a time trial, then it's it's really really unlikely. Yeah. He, his strength is like. Really tricky technical finishes. He's really good in the bunch for such a small guy. Crosswinds he's good. Wet weather is really good. Cold conditions he's good. High altitude. Like re- like in uh, so that'll set suggest Giro. Yeah, he could so be like a five times so Giro good. winner if yeah. he wanted to. So he could beat Remco in the Giro. Remco could slap him four stages in a row. 30 seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds on sort of medium to medium difficulty mountaintop finishes, but then there could be like one brutal stage, you know, cold, freezing, and you see what Simon and Yates, they could just collapse. Like, you don't know how – and Bernal, I don't think, collapses in those situations.
0: And what you're saying – like, you said – you didn't say this, Bradum, but you said it. Like, the risk is the ones you don't see. It's like the youth coming up. When Bernal's winning in 2019 – they're looking around saying, wow, who can stop us? Uh, I like Neil Rogers tweets every time someone wins, this guy's going to win for the next 10 years. It <laughs> never happens. But no one knew who Taddy Pogacar was. Maybe if you watched the Tour of California that year, you, you knew who he was, but no one was paying attention. And then he's an order of magnitude better than Bernal. And then, yeah, as you're saying, is Juan Ayuso just going to be a step above everyone? And if you don't strike while the hot is hot, you might never win again.
1: Yeah, like you, you don't know, like, because teams now are not doing some sort of like plan where they, okay, you're only going to do your first tour at 24 and then you're only going to be leader at 27, like maybe was the case in 2000. It's like teams it know, okay, the kid can do <laughs> in training seven watts per kilo for 20 minutes. He's good in race, he's going to the tour. That's what UA did with Pagacha in 2020. Um, like Aru was supposed to be the leader, but they're like, we better take Pog because he is so good um, and who knows. And so teams are not sh- – a lot of teams are just not shielding the young guys anymore. If they- Like Bora, if – I think Bora should take Euterbrooks to the tour this year along – because probably expected case, he's a domestique for Hindley that's great experience you'll be in the last 12 to 15 guys on mountaintop finishes you experience the stress the atmosphere and you got no pressure he'll have no pressure if he goes i think it's like what well, it's what Ineos else did with bernal in 2018 yeah. it's it's the perfect but maybe they won't maybe they're like oh he should do like you know a dot pro sort of he should try and win tour of turkey sort of approach but yeah i think Ineos definitely they just if the guy's good enough bang he's in
0: what do you, why, do you, why is this changed? Assuming let's say Bora does take him. you know, that would, there's, there's a pattern of behavior where it's changed from, yeah, you're a leader when you're 27 to you're 20 and you're pretty good. And the, we have a cancer scientist as our trainer and he's saying, you're awesome. So we should take you like what changed? Why are teams now doing this when they didn't used to do it? Even, you know, power has been a long, around for a long time. And even with those power numbers in 2013, it's hard to imagine a team behaving that way.
1: I think it is the power stuff. I think teams understanding power data and projecting it is probably, um, probably only the last five years, teams really start to understand it. And like, okay, this guy did X in training camp in January. Cause once they put the guy on the, on the schedule, which gets decided in December, January, if Victor Brooks say they have an opinion of him in December, January, that he's not going to the tour because slowly, slowly. And then he does really good numbers in a race in April. Like unless the schedule really allows it or they thought there might be a chance to go to the tour, he might already be not able to do the, the training camp or his race schedule doesn't line up with the tour because they didn't think he would go in, in December, January, um, because they didn't think, okay, like, what is Pidcock doing six point, whatever it is, 6.6 in December, mean he can do in july like obviously it means he should go to the tour and of course he will go to the tour like of course but it's the edge cases where it's like what if he did 6.2 and he's this age and he wasn't that trained um then maybe 10 years ago wouldn't put him in the tour sort of the tour trajectory where he might go
0: and well tom pickock win a grand tour i'm asking this one for andrew
2: (laughs) it was on my list of questions thank you spencer
1: it's real. It's really hard. Like he has a he has a chance to, but like, is his climbing going to be better than the top guys? Probably not. Um, I have no idea what his fatigue resistance is like. He was really good in the first ten stages of the tour. Um, will he focus on it exclusively for three years when he's still young, with to the exclusion of CX? Because remember, like Evans and Fulsang and Rasmussen and Sagan, they were all they were all, like, top mountain bike riders. Like, they were superstars, in others, but they gave it away um, to focus on rows. So will he – is that necessary? I don't know. Like, I'm not a sports scientist, so maybe it's not necessary. Maybe CX is actually good for him in January. Um, mentally, maybe it's really good for him, and, and that's important too. His descending's great. Punch is good. Ineos, obviously, above average team. Will he go to – I think he might be able to win a Vuelta. I think the Vuelta, because he's kind of like Roglic, right? Um, I think a, a Vuelta where Pog, maybe 2024 Vuelta, I think is a really good chance he could win it.
2: Guys, a question for both of you, just as we're talking about these individual riders and their prospects for the future, something that often gets overlooked or taken for granted is there's an assumption that the level teams are at today And, like, even if we hold their financial support constant, there's an assumption that's generally made that they will continue to be as organized, as strategic, and will take as cohesive of an approach as they have in the past. And I think last year, Anaos is a good example of, I mean, Garrett Thomas shows up with a vest at the tour, right? And the first time trial. And, like, we just see these little mistakes. And there were a number of those little mistakes that were very out of character, I think, for that team. Are there any teams that are sleepers in the background that you see slowly laying the foundation that might not be obvious to the casual fan of the sport or even the expert fan that are on the rise and might be able to put riders in a position where the team and the rider can punch above their weight?
1: I think Movistar are are maybe a coach or a DS away, a few changes. Um, now they might go the other direction, put Valverde in the car, and it might not work out. Yeah, that's what but I, I don't think,
0: like about I, that situation.
1: Yeah, I, I probably won't. But I think they they're kind of close. Like they they do they got good team camaraderie. It's just missing that little little bit. And, and what you're talking about, Andrew, is exactly what happened with Intermarche, which completely went under the radar. I completely overlooked it because no one really looks at staff movements. That closely or quantifies them but yeah we were doing the intermarche and dsm preview in the same uh in the same recording on the lantern shocking cycling podcast and we realized benji looked up that eicher v speak went from dsm in the end of 2020 so for the 2021 season to intermarche for 2021 and dsm Sunweb for the four years or whatever he was there 18 19 20 absolutely flying goes to intermarche I think our preview I was like the one of the worst teams in cycling he goes there and all of a sudden this year they're like a really good team not just they they got out of the relegation battle by like March and then they were focused on like being a good team um and so it, it almost is like one staff member can change everything like um and Ineos for example like a fair few staff movements this year will see what happens with that like narvin a lot of people i think will let go stannard comes in from trinity i did like that he went and they didn't just give him a job as a ds at Ineos. he went and worked at trinity i think that's good um but yeah like i don't know how that will play out because it's i have i have no idea how good Ian stannard is at preparing a group of guys for a race
0: and one thing that makes i just think about i find myself thinking about Moby star more than i should like, so they're, you know, fantastically dressed, you know, GM owner seems to do everything there. Like, does, is that, is it a hindrance at a certain point because you have this powerful legacy figure just sitting on top of every decision that gets made? And even if Pachi Vila comes in, he can't turn the culture around because we have to go on the sensations and how we feel versus what objective things are telling us.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think I think in in Senior is really conservative. So like, if if a decision in a race in the Vuelta means that there is one percent less chance that Enrique Mus keeps second, I'm not even to go to just keep second, i.e. a rider going for a stage from a breakaway, then they won't do it. If he's calling the shots, that's what I think, and maybe they. Because like when Verona does get a free leash, he like won he won Dauphiné stage. Yeah, really impressively um, too. Like yeah, he's a super strong rider. Like he could be a great rider in breaks. Um, they they generally only put riders in breakaways defensively as a satellite rider. So they'll put a ruler and in, in a in a breakaway in a mountain stage, and you're like, why the why have they put Nelson Oliveira in this break? And it's sort of to have him up the road in case you know in case in case. Um, so I'd like to see them be a lot more aggressive next year because they, they can win more races just by, you know, I think if Jumbo Visma let Walfenart do whatever he wants, no, that's not true, ride for his own ambitions in the Tour de France for green whilst going for yellow, then really if your rider's sort of sitting comfortably in third on GC, then the other riders within reason should have some free reign to target breakaways and stages. Otherwise, Because if you don't, and you don't have a sprinter, how are you going to win any races throughout the year? Like You're not going to win very many races.
0: Slightly important. It's not something you want to overlook yeah. that they seem to do sometimes. Do you think... Exactly. Ineos, Andrew, I'll let you ask a question right after this. Sorry, I'm, I'm going crazy over here. Do you think Ineos... Is, I mean, obviously the death of Nico Portal was tragic and unforeseeable. I think he was like a great man manager, and they haven't quite been the same since. But do you think Dave Brailsford stepping back, stepping up to his kind of C-suite corner office role, has hurt the day-to-day operations of that team?
1: I don't know. Like I, I'm not in the team, so I have no idea. But yeah, like it's. <sighs> Yeah, Brailsford's gone. He's going to. He's like living in what, like a camper van in Nice, right? Managing the football team there. Yeah, and he um, used Ellenworth to came across. Go to
0: every. I think every race. Like he would just have a little camper van. Yeah. and He would be right, drive around to every race they were at.
1: And then, sort of, they had a couple of years during the pandemic. Yeah, they like they hired Adam Yates. Was he the answer? Like, no. So like they let him go. they, they still have a lot of like, quite good, but not like. S tier GC contenders, and maybe they're like, okay, well, we've got to sign Michael Leonard because I said Nordhagen. What if Michael Leonard 2026 2027 is the one at the tour? Uh, they signed Plapp, he's kind of in the great Thomas model, yeah, like an X track guy. But I, I don't know, it's it's Ellingworth's in charge. They're some of their signings, like I think, are quite sponsor driven, like Viviani is he like, why do they sign Viviani? Like that, that's for the Olympics, right? Yeah. That's not really for road. And so they even have a whole of sport objective, not just road performance. And I'm always just assessing him on road performance, but that, because I'm like, Viviani is not good. Like he won, I think uh, he's not good at world tour level anymore. So Ineos is a, one of the top teams. They should only be focusing on world tour wins or young guys who could win at world tour. So why are they signing Viviani? Well, friends with Ghana and it's, to get gold on the track in Paris in 2024. And I'm like, well, if that means Pitarello pay more money, like, can I criticize that? Like, that's just, it's just reality of business.
2: You mentioned Brailsford. Something that struck me during the 2022 season is that during the few bright spots that Ineos did have, I'm thinking of Perry Rubin in particular like it seemed like Brailsford himself actually won Perry Roubaix. He really put himself in the foreground. I know Spencer and I talked about it following the race and he's clearly like he's played a huge role in British cycling and in the success of sky. And then the it just seemed odd to me that he was popping up during the, uh, the like very bright spot highlight moments, um, for the team in a way that you didn't really see with other organizations. But um, it's something we haven't talked about that, Patrick, I'd love to hear your take, and Spencer as well. What's going to happen to Matthew Vanderpool in twenty twenty two? Or sorry, I think we know what's happening in twenty twenty two. He might be winning a few more We're races this time, week. Yeah. But as we, yeah, yeah, yeah. as Christmas races, as we look to twenty twenty three, though. Is this going to be, are we going to see him just completely flame out at some point? Or do you think he's going to actually manage his talent and his effort better in 23?
1: I think they have brought in some really good support for him with Sir Kraar and, um, Clinton Herman. So that's a big plus, um, I, I don't know, like, it's kind of crazy this year how he did what classic Milan San Remo classics Giro tour. Um, and I, I don't know what happened, but in the Giro, I think as well, like there's no shame in leaving after the first rest day, if you've achieved your objective and if it's, if staying is going to stuff up the rest of your season, then, and, and, you know, you need to go to the tour for sponsors and whatever, then what ended up happening was he didn't leave the Giro and then he had to leave the tour on stage 11, um, which wasn't a great outcome for them probably. So I don't know, it's a lot of weight on him. Maybe then Quinton Herman's, they think can take some weight off in certain races. Maybe he doesn't have to do some of the other races. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, that's that's a risk. I agree that like, I'm always thinking uh, what could happen here. He's had the long standing back. The back, chronic back issue yeah. i think um th- that wasn't actually from the olympics fall it was like i i think from memory it was separate to that um so i don't know i think he'll still he'll still turn up to rvv is the favorite like if sir and hermans is there like he should still be the favorite
2: i honestly i worry about um just looking at some of the conditions they've been racing in during the cyclocross season, which are the same conditions they always race in just the risk of an orthopedic injury or re-injuring his back seems extremely high to me. And I guess he's a rider at a level and on a team where he can have significant control over what he does and does not do. It just does not seem wise with other objectives he might have later in the season for him to be running and ankle deep, mud on off camber turns, but you know he's a well, that, well, there's not he a nice much money out there yeah
1: so so, so they, they they can't tell him no because he's only on two mil and like he's worth four or five um if he was on another team um as sort of one of the best classics riders in the world and all, everything else he does and he's on two and I think that's <laughs> so then he has to be able to go all the CX races with all the appearance fees etc so yeah is
2: it the same with pedcock then
1: i don't know what he's like he signed a big extension with ineos but i think i think part of that that's okay just to negotiate i think but surely that's sort of their whole of cycling thing so i think like they're happy for him to do mountain bike at the olympics to do cyclocross because it's like pinarello gets three three bikes worth of exposure rather than one and you know, multi-sport. And the the Olympics, let's be real, the Olympics is bigger than ninety nine point nine percent of cycling races. So it kind of makes sense.
2: Yeah, I know Spencer and I did an episode about cyclocross recently and it was immediately I'm gonna forget which World Cup race it was, but it was the one where Matthew Vanderpool was leading, slid out on the cobbles, had a, a very heavy wreck, and then Pitcock was inches behind him, ran into Vanderpool, and then also went down on the cobbles and I mean, I think that's just a perfect example of, yes, wrecks happen all the time in cycling. We all, on, beyond the Peloton, we always talk about how the ground is undefeated in the uh, history of bike racing. Like, you're not going to win if the ground decides you're going to be stuck to it. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, like, gosh, does Pidcock want to take that level of risk with what he has in front of him? I guess the answer right now is yes, but...
0: It's why we're nerds, and he's him. <laughs> yeah like right he's not sitting around God. thinking oh is this actually that safe should i be doing this um yeah but even like the back into this year it's 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 funny you mentioned that i have thought a lot about that patrick where you Vanderpool spent a lot of time in mountain breakaways which like they were impressive like that was cool
1: but oh, it super exciting <laughs> not what i would
0: recommend i think it fried him for the rest of the year it's is he just kind of making his? He's a bit essentially taking a pay cut so he can be his own boss. He can work for himself.
1: Um. Yeah. Like, what can they say to him? You know. Like, yeah. he's he's brought that team up. Um, and he's been there for ages. So, but yeah, it's like, do they know? Like exactly, those mountain stages were super impressive, and I was like, wow, he's actually performing better than I thought he would. But he still couldn't win. Mm-hmm. Like. Like on the final, like mountain top finish, I can't remember it was like Jan Hirt or someone like, it, I swear it was like Jan Hirt, Casti Buitrago and Liam um, Riser were like in the break, like three consecutive mountain breaks. And like, they still dropped him on the final finish. And he didn't really have a chance, um, but I don't know, like maybe it was the appearance fee at the Giro. Um, and so like, you got to finish the race. But I guess you can sit in a bunch too. <laughs> you don't need to do that. Um, it's it certainly didn't help his Tour de France preparation, like finishing the Giro like that.
0: No. I uh guys, I, I regret to inform you, I've got to run. I've got basketball tickets. I got a tea time coming up, Andrew. It's
2: gotta it's got a tea time, it's gotta to get to the golf course. Yeah.
0: But uh do you have one more question you want to ask, Andrew?
2: Uh, just on that Matthew Vanderpool topic, one of the things Spencer and I talked about during the Giro and then during the tour, and you mentioned this earlier, Patrick, this phenomenon of some riders within Grand Tours or the highest level races, they it seems like perhaps they're just training in the middle of the race. Did you get the feeling that Vanderpool was potentially doing training as the Giro went on or was it just unintelligent, non-strategic riding?
1: Oh, no. He definitely was training in uh, Settimana, the one-week Italian race before the Giro. One hundred percent, that was just like training. Um, no, in the Giro, I, I think he was trying to win the stage. I think he was trying to be like, if I, I reckon I can win. And there was a chance he could win one of them. Like he tried to get ahead of the break using the descent and stuff. Um, I think he just wanted to put on a show and see if he could win a mountain break and, and test his limits. And like, yeah, it was super exciting. But there was, I can't remember how the Tour de France started. Didn't really have any stage that suited him in stage one, two, three. But, yeah, like, then...
0: Oh, wait, do you... Yeah, this is this is <laughs> fitting because it was in Denmark. Right. I don't think there was a single hill the entire opening no, weekend.
1: But he was there, right, for Longway and Lausanne? Yeah, and he, he just... Stage 6 and 8, those puncher stages? Yeah, he was
0: terrible. He was always, like, last guy in the bunch. Could barely kind of stay in yeah. the race.
1: Yeah, so, like those are his stages. Like he probably, Pog won one, right? I'd say he probably beats, uh, he, he wins one of those two, I think. Because even Wout, the one Wout won wasn't perfect positioning. He, he sort of had to come around Matthews. So I think Van wins one of them in peak condition.
2: Spencer, how about you? Have you got a final question before you out to the team? I was just going
0: to say, does he know that some races are more important than the others? Because do you remember the Bink Bank Tour was like the day before Liège and he was off the front for like 50K? And then I think he finished seventh at Liège the next day. And it's like you probably win that race if you just skip the final day of the Bink Bank Tour or don't go solo for the last two hours of it.
1: I think in race, Vanderpool actually took a big step up this year. I think he was way better in race. So, like in those Giro stages in a bubble, did he, to win those stages with that parkour, did he adopt a strategy that gave him the highest chance of winning? Yes. Was that the good idea with the Tour de France coming up? No, probably not. Um, but, like, yeah, compared to two years ago, and he said this, he's like, I don't do dumb attacks anymore. You don't know how long your career can be. I've got to make the most of it. I think he is much more economical in races now. Like Tour of Flanders, he wasn't trying to flex yeah, on anybody yeah, exactly. at any point. He just followed Pog and then worked a little bit 50 50. He wasn't trying to like be the big man or whatever or, or, or drop him at any point. And then he just completely finessed him in the final. Like backed himself. Like he played that strategically perfectly when he wasn't the strongest on qualmont uh, he wasn't even the strongest guy in the race. It, well, he was had the best sprint which is super important. Um, but yeah, on Quarmont, pog was stronger. So I think in race, his strategy has improved a lot.
2: Okay. One more. I understand there are certain loyalties within this group. People are getting paid, whatever. Who's going to win the cyclocross world championship. <laughs>
1: who's, who's competing in it. Is it wow. Are the big three doing it. I heard. Yes. Wout's doing it. Yeah.
2: I mean, actually, I don't know. I don't know if Wout's committed. <laughs> I heard that he's doing it at, a, an, a at an altitude camp. I don't know. All
1: right i'm gonna go with Wout if he's doing it um yeah i'm gonna go with him
2: okay spencer
1: i,
0: I would love to say Wout. i once like suggested Wout might be good at cyclocross uh but in the days before andrew and i got like 55 instagram dms from the cyclocross boys telling me i was an idiot and don't know ball because vanderpool's better but
1: I think I actually have no idea about Simon Cross. I have no idea. Is, just, these are dangerous waters.
0: Patrick. <laughs> I think Pickcock. I don't know. I, I like the. I think he's okay. the, the
1: new kid on the block. I
0: think the old guys are. He's
1: good on the punchier courses, right? And they're good on like the heavy sand courses. The bigger boys.
0: Yeah, I think that's why he probably dominated
1: it. Where is Worlds this year? That would be uh, my next question. Do you know Andrew? If it's on a beach, I'm going with Van or Well. <laughs>
2: uh boy spencer you've caught me with uh yeah i actually I, i can't remember i don't know i'm still i'll tell you what though i'm gonna go with matthew Vanderpool. i think that he's aggrieved because of the incident at road worlds for which he has now been exonerated apparently and i think he wants the rainbow stripes the most out of those three athletes even though they're all you know, if they're all game writers, they all are fighters, they all want to win worlds. But I think it means the most to Vanderpool. And I think he will fight the hardest for it unless he crashes on the cobbles again or injures his lower back, which is totally possible.
0: Then I have one more question. One more. Who's going to win the tour in 2023?
1: Tour in 2023. If I was doing it, that would be my hot take. Holy but he's doing the world. He smokes. That is a hot take. But he's doing the welter, so I can't even say it. But I think, yeah, he would be lethal. Um, my like super hot take is Enric Mas because I'm also like a bit of a modest star. Like I really like the teams that aren't perfect. Um, like Mas is—it's never been a better time for him. Um, no high altitude, no TT, but I still have to go with with finger guard. Yeah, I think finger will win. Um, Roglich, the recovery, like. I don't know what what what's happening with him, but yeah, I'm going with Jonas just because I think there are some. Of course, there's no Col du Granon, but there's some really steep climbs, and and it's there's much more climbing than this year's race. It's just spread out a bit more evenly. Um, and I don't know where. I still worry about UAE's like ability to control the starter stages. I'm not sure they fixed that problem. They re, like if they got Stefan Kung, I would have been like, okay, that's like kung and Trentin, that's really powerful uh at the start but and kung can climb too kind of like fifth and two of the swiss so he'll he'll like help you after some of the big climbs in the flat but um they didn't so i'll go with finger guard
0: Stefan kung got top five at every race in 2022 it's a little known fact <laughs> there's not yeah, a race much. on the calendar <laughs> that he was not close to the podium andrew who do you think andrew's he came not top a-
1: 10 in that parany stage the stage eight that simon yates won He's he like, crazy. he, yeah, he's crazy.
0: He's like the best rider no one ever talks about. Andrew, you don't believe in Jonas. Do you, do you think he's good? You, you actually said hot take one time that he was never even going to race the tour again.
2: Yeah. I don't believe he'll race the tour this year.
1: Okay. That's a big, that's a hot take. That's <laughs> take
0: is molten <laughs> lava. I yeah, that's an interesting, actually, that's an interesting perspective that Jonas is the favorite for 2023 now you kind of have me doubting my Pog
1: will be the favorite I think in the betting markets yeah favorite amongst do you think no yeah Pog will be the favorite for sure
0: um I just meant internally our favorites in our heart yeah yeah the most important place in professional cycling um
1: it's impossible no like one of them might crash in and then it's just you know it's really important because like you know better like you see Jonas on Jonas on Solaison in Dauphine. You're like, okay, well, he's not crashing Dauphine, He's tuned up. He's looking good. Then you know how good the guy is going. Paul at Slovenia, kind of, it's harder to tell. But yeah, like, who knows? Like, so much can happen in six seven months. I know that's the boring, the boring opinion. But yeah, like, so much can happen. It's do you, also sub
0: question to that question. Um, I I got into a mini argument with Benji, saying you know his theory is that if. Pog doesn't win the tour every season. A season is a disappointment if he does not win the Tour de France. You know, he could win Flanders, Lombardia, World Championships, three stages of the tour. Like, do you think it's tour or bust, tour overall or bust for Pog in 2023?
1: I think for Ineos, Yumbo, and and UAE, yeah, every year. You spend that much money on a team, that's the goal. And if you, you know, your, your goal is to win the tour. And I know it's very reductive and of course there's other races, but like, if you're really thinking like a high performance, like the goal is to win the tour. We have to win the tour. If you don't win it. Yeah. It's like, you can call it a bust or failure or you didn't meet your objective, whatever you want. But like, yeah, for those three teams, that should be the goal every year um, with the money they're spending compared to the other teams or the talent they have.
0: Tadej Pogacar, I regret to inform you, you're a failure. (laughs) Well, it's like oh, I think we did we lose? uh, Oh, Patrick's here. I thought we lost. Well,
1: it's like maybe maybe they also did everything right to put themselves in the best position that year. You know, did Ineos could Ineos have done any better this year in the tour? Probably not. No, 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 (laughs) No.
0: that was as good as (laughs) that was an amazing ride from Garrett Thomas. Alpe
1: d'Huez stage with Lapidcock and Thomas third, like. It's pretty good.
2: I think um, it's pretty. I think from an outcome point of view, you're correct. From a process point of view, I think they absolutely could have executed better at the tour. Would the result have been different in the end? No, but I think that it revealed fractures in the team that are disturbing.
1: Well, that's why Yates was gone, right?
2: Yeah.
1: I'm not saying it was about teammate or anything, but it just they they figured it didn't work. Whatever that yeah. dynamic was, it just it right. didn't work. So it, they were happy to let him go.
0: But Carapaz's third place the year before, papered over similar problems. You know, that didn't work. You had Thomas. That was much
2: worse. Yeah. So yeah, you yeah. might be right, in There's a there's a pattern here. That's all I'm saying.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, they I they're kind of like a forest that it's it's not burning, so the undergrowth is keeping new trees from growing. And it's like all these pretty good riders you talk about, but not the best. Best are keeping riders from Luke Platt from developing into true leaders. Cause they have like too many middle managers, basically.
2: They used to call it the death star. I think we're maybe one step away from seeing a rap video come out of their team camp. I think that they might join some of these other <laughs> that teams is. that are dropping rap
0: videos. <laughs> Dark to think about.
1: Damn.
2: I love um, rap. I love hip hop, but I mean, I'm not sure that we need an AOS uh, rap video. We might see that- one though.
1: That's the death spiral. But, yeah, it's like, okay, once Thomas and row retire and Criado maybe, like, oh, nah, Criado signed through 25. But, yeah, like, who's the leader? I guess someone else steps up. But, yeah, they got Sivakov out of contract, Gegenhardt out of contract as well. It's a lot of these guys, like, do you, do you even want to give them the tour opportunities? Because, like, Gegenhardt Hart with no TT at the tour, like, do you want to give them the opportunities if they leave or, you know, it's, yeah, I, I, I think the best you know they they're doing what they can with all the chips in the table with pickcock i think that makes sense they tried to get rem i think or at least thought about it answer was no um so i don't really see what they could have done too differently this offseason um I, I think them letting carapaz and um what's that scene from moneyball when jonah hill's in the car It's like I think it's a good thing Johnny Davis looks yeah. like I think I think that was a good thing not to to match their salaries Carapaz and Yates because they're not they're not winning the tour for you
0: so I also have one more question so I, I wake you up from a six month slumber you fall asleep in August you wake up in January and I say Mark Cavendish is yeah. on Astana do you believe me do you think something has gone wrong
1: no for sure I believe you yeah because Cav doesn't really care about the record. Cav cares about the record as much in as much as it gets him a nice contract. I think. <laughs> like, if he really cared about the record, wouldn't there have been other better options that he would have already signed with? Like, because um, like I kept saying, Ineos makes sense, but then I was like, why would no? That you, you're forgetting, Ellingworth signed him at Bahrain McLaren, and that was a disaster. So like, that's not happening again. Um, and i was like okay so that's off. like if he if he took 200k some other team would have signed him with a better lead out but of course he, he didn't he obviously wanted more money which he's entitled to um but it, you know he wasn't i don't think his primary focus was go to best place to break the record cuz why would you go to bnb in the first place like why did you why would you decide that in august
0: yeah so you think it's just a keep cash and checks phase of the career yep i hope the check's clear might be that might be <laughs> a problem at astana
1: well that's the risk yeah i mean they got lopez money now off the books so they can presumably he got he gets a fair chunk of lopez money yeah. or more. i don't know but i mean they got uh, they got case bowl and and siri it's uh <laughs> has laid out like it's not there is someone to lead him out. There is There are humans to lead him out who are big. Um, but it's also like that team's never gone before a stage with a strategy of how to do a lead out for a pure bunch sprint in a world tour race, let alone the Tour de France. So like there's no there's no Tom Steele's uh, a quick step or Ballerini, uh, no, not Ballerini, but Ramati in the car who's going to map out exactly how it's going to play out. And it's gonna be correct. So Cav's gonna to have to do that. Cav's gonna to have to coach, I think, the team on how we're gonna play these stages, which probably a good thing actually. Like he's you hear him talk about the stages afterwards, like he he knows what he's doing, but that's a lot of responsibility for him. And I don't know if yeah. It's gonna be I think he has a chance, but it's also the equipment too. Like he's he's gone from special with all that to to their equipment. That's a bit a downgrade too.
2: Patrick, did you feel like it was a bit of a tell that Cavendish might be headed to Astana when he started spending time with former Astana writer and DS, Lance Armstrong, and Johan Brunil?
1: Nah, no, I think that was just that was just a catch-up, I think. So to, I don't know, two guys
2: he's... with great,
0: fantastic relationships with the Astana team.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think that was just a catch-up. I, 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 I didn't even thought of that. Um, that, that was pre Lopez. So, unless like Vino had some like plan that he knew they were going to fire Lopez and that would open up Cav, and he started talks with Cav before firing Lopez. So, he only fired Lopez when he knew Cav might come. Maybe, maybe <laughs> it was like all that happening, but no, I don't think so. I think it was like Lopez got fired and then he was like, BNB folded because BNB might not have folded at that point either. So Cabin might not have been available. Although if his agent was doing his job, he would have been talking to other teams. I don't know. Um, but I think more likely it was just reactive. Everyone's just reacting to things really last minute.
2: Fair enough. I have to point out that to engineer the joke slash conspiracy theory that I just advanced once i learned that cav had signed with astana i had to go to google because something in my brain was like i think lance wrote for astana and i i'd totally forgotten and he in fact did in 2009 which uh that was the I don't think my, tour yeah I that, don't was think great, we'll, that was the great yeah, one. that was a, it was a great
0: it was a great i'll tour. never forget yeah lance coming back like oh this is so cool
1: <laughs> wait what's astana
0: <laughs> like what is what what is going on right now
1: <laughs> i remember I don't know if Contador would only take bidons or gels from like one guy on the team um, during that tour. There's so many many great stories from that tour. Um, And and like I'm on neither rider's side. It's like when Contador got dropped in the crosswind stage, the stage Cavendish won incidentally on I think HTC. um, It's like too fucking bad. Like Lance made the split. A lot of GC guys, including you, didn't. Too bad. Like make the split um if you have co-leaders and simultaneously in the mountains if Lance can't follow and Conradore wants to gain time on Schleck or someone too bad that's racing so it was, yeah, it was great to watch like I've rewatched a fair few of those stages recently that's it yeah I've got that one on DVD
0: now, that, that that's not
1: going anywhere that's the best. Um, this plug-in from the GPS. A sliding doors
0: moment. I always <laughs> think about with that is so. What Lance misses the yellow jersey by like oh, a fraction of a second in the team time trial. If he gets yellow, does Contador? I, I guess the the boring answer He'll is Contador attack still attacks. But it, like you yeah. could imagine, like maybe he can't attack and he's this way better rider, but he can't attack his teammate and Lance wins that door.
1: So I think Contador before. Lance got signed after, like late, right, or for that season. I think when he came back, it was unsure if he was coming back. So I think Contador had been promised to a leadership, from what I understand. So I think he wouldn't give a fuck. He'd just attack him. Now whether there would literally have been like an on bike bust up, maybe, (laughs) or post race, but I think Contador still attacks him. It's kind of like the Alpe d'Huez stage that um, who's your man that won, Sastra. When he attacked Schleck in yellow, yeah. not attacked. That was their plan the to to Schlecks. work Evans over. Schleck talk. Yeah. Shout out um, Schlecks. <laughs> that was great tactics, but like tough for Schleck because because yeah, he probably still would have won the tour if they just rode if Sastre just went on the front and rode tempo. But they were more likely to win the tour the way they the way they did it.
0: And then that stage is incidentally why Armstrong came back in 2009 as he couldn't stand it's is off the record everybody forget you heard this but he couldn't stand that sastra won the tour because he didn't consider him a very good writer
1: he's kind of a pure climber and edge just had a, had a great down afterwards but yeah it's it's great strategy like i've watched that stage in full as well the way the way they set it up with can, the way the cancellara the way cancellara worked um as well as like a ruler in the mountains really impressive um the way they played that stage and this it's co-leadership like has it ever for like multiple years been like a harmonious no like you know it's it's tough like managing co-leadership um disaster kind of got
0: run off that team a little bit is that he left to go to cervello yeah 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 after winning the tour I, don't,
1: I know i don't know if he got run off that he left um, and it's like the same thing, like Froome Wiggins and Thomas. And Thomas is, I, that's why I love G. Um, he's really has no ego. Like, he will. Dauphiné let Port go last year. Catalunya let Yates go. He's not a guy that's like, I'm going to gain more in the TT. We ride Skytrain for me. I'm still going to win, most likely. Like, he's really embraced co-leadership with so many different writers. Uh, It's really impressive.
2: I'm going to throw something out there right now because this discussion is giving me an idea. I'm wondering if listeners would like to hear some kind of version of the Rewatchables where we take a look at a classic stage, maybe get some of the writers or a writer who was an animator of that stage on the show and talk about it. If you think that would be cool, hit me on Twitter at Vontz at V-O-N-T-Z. You can hit Spencer at BTP cycling. Where Patrick at?
1: Oh, I think it's Atlanta Rouge YT. That's for YouTube. Um, so now we yeah. have to do it because you said it. Yeah. Now it's out there. We
0: have no
2: choice. I think I think that so would be I, fun. Yeah. I'm trying.
1: I'm trying to hit up ASOs to be like, how much would it cost for me to put up the full Col de Grenoble stage on YouTube with like me doing a full con, like the four and a half hours, because I think it would be. It'd be super popular. Like, you have to
2: pay you, man.
1: Yeah, that's a separate. That's a separate. Yeah, they should (laughs) be paying you. I,
2: yeah, we probably can't get into this. I (laughs) had like a whole section on the ASO in here, but maybe that's an uh, offline discussion. (laughs)
1: Can you I I have a good relationship with them. I think they actually get a bit of a bad rap. Um, Like, and listen, I'm not. I pay them. Are you on I'm the paying, payroll,
2: Patrick? No, I'm paying. I'm paying them. <laughs> is there anything a, you maybe, want to disclose, man?
1: I'm paying them a lot of money. Is what I want to disclose. But I, I, I have a good business relationship with them, and they're pretty. They're one of the better people I've worked with in the cycling industry. But yeah, I like. Is there a nice market? Like, look at NFL. Didn't they put out that Minnesota game? I said it on the poll the other day. The Minnesota, the crazy comeback where the score changed like six times. It was like maybe a month ago. The NFL put up at least the last quarter on in full. They're like, fuck yeah, it, just they'll put just it up. put them
0: up in full because they've yeah, figured... and they
1: put Super Bowls up too. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're premium product. They will put the full Super Bowl on YouTube. And if they're doing it, like there are some smart people working in NFL. Like you know, <laughs> that's with American sports. Don't second guess what the best sports leagues are doing in the media space. If they're growing their asset value to like ridiculous amounts of money, they're doing something right. They know what they're doing just copy it
0: well i think they correctly deduced that it's like milk right it spoils so fast like once the super bowl has happened the, re- yeah. the value is decreased to a point where they don't mind giving it away for free same thing with you know if you were doing what you're doing with the nba you wouldn't have to pay them anything you could just use as much of the game feed as you want
1: i know it was it is all yeah <laughs> that's a that's a whole other like podcast he's talking about like media rights, the structure of the business like how it works but yeah like i look at john boy not paying he doesn't pay a dime for no. rice right no and i'm like fucking hell like, <laughs> he's got like millions of investment based on just like using as much like of a premium top four in a, uh, american sport for free <laughs> um now maybe for full stage reviews that that doesn't That argument doesn't hold up. He just takes interesting snippets. Maybe if he was doing full stage highlights, he would have to pay. I don't know. But yeah, it's a whole different world over there.
0: Well, you're welcome anytime. I'll I'll talk to – I was right by the White House the other day, actually. I'll talk to Joe. I'll get it worked out so you can come over and live here if you want
1: maybe maybe yeah i'll set up and start a start an nba or nfl or because like my channel i kind of based on coach daniel and he ended up working for the dallas mavericks he did nba analysis on youtube and then he actually just gave it all away because his end goal was to get an analyst job um uh i think he's giving it away so yeah i just was like kind of copied his format and the dunked on format
0: wasn't your twitter bio like maybe someday i'll Stop watching cycling, and you guys can screw off or something. Like, am I misremembering
1: this? (laughs) Yeah, like maybe I'll get bored. I don't know. Like, it's possible. Like, you never know. I've changed, changed industries really rapidly. Maybe, maybe I'll get bored. Uh, I mean, I'm working for Yumbo through 2024, so at least until then, I'm locked into cycling. Um, and also the the ASO agreement runs for a fair while too, so. For, the, for now, locked into cycling. But maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe cricket uh, in the future.
2: Yeah, we didn't get into this, but I uh, did a bit of research, basketball and cricket coaching certifications. I noticed, Patrick.
1: Yeah, I was, a, I was a basketball and cricket coach for like throughout the entirety of university for like six years, five, six years. Um, and even coaching some like decent cricket teams too. Um, so Krieg, it's also like cycling in that it's kind of, if you don't understand, if you didn't grow up with it, it's kind of impervious um, and it can be pretty boring and it's really long. So a lot of similarities there. Um, and yeah, I, I really enjoyed coaching. So that's why the Yumbo Visma work is kind of, it's really nice to do that sort of work, actually working with a team in a high performance environment as opposed to always just sort of commenting on a race. It's, it's nice to feel part of like a broader, a broader team.
0: Instead of like turning Yambo Visma into a powerhouse and the best team today, would you like your boss, Richard Pluge was just like a a cycling media guy and he bought that team probably for not very much money. Like, would you ever think about just buying the BNB license and then Lantern Rouge Media is the sponsor of the team?
1: Too much admin, too much work. Like, I yeah, I just, I don't have the, I don't want to manage that many people, sponsorships. Like, you're doing like a lot of his job is sales, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not interested in it. I would, my dream, my dream in like four years is to, um, (laughs) is to run like run Movistar's like race strategy, maybe. Um, or, (laughs) or, or FDJ. Like, imagine if you were the person that helped FDJ like win the Tour de France. Um, maybe maybe I'd become popular in France um but yeah like maybe that's a challenge is more of an integrated role as opposed to being a consultant but um for now it's like I get the best of both worlds in that I don't have to do any of the BS of like I don't have to hand out a bid on I don't have to like I don't have to manage anything or whatever I don't have to fill in paperwork I just like watch races provide advice um in in different ways and and yeah, hopefully it's helpful. So it's kind of a good spot.
2: It's Spencer. I know they're not going to hold those courtside seats forever, but Patrick, I have to ask a follow-up question. I know you probably can't disclose specifics about the impact of your work with Yumbo, but have there been moments when you provided input changes have been made and you've been able to see a measurable difference in the outcome?
1: things benji suggested in the classics yeah probably um he's benji's stronger than me i think maybe in like in in analyzing classics parkour um there are a few things and in stage races maybe a couple of it's hard because it's like it's a process right like we're not you're not deciding race strategy the day before like the day before generally or the day off for the tour it's like it's months of preparation so it's months of like Getting together, talking through things, and um, but yeah, like a, a few things maybe, um, but also some other things where I said X, they did Y. Y ended up being way better M- many times. That happened too, which was humbling um, as well. So yeah, there are a couple of things uh, I think, um, particularly in, in sprints. But yeah, it's 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 fun, but. It's at the end of the day, they, they decide what, what strategy they're going to do um, or how they're going to play it, who they're going to select, who they're going to sign. I just have my view on it, which I guess that's the benefit of like I've always on the podcast or whatever not been shy of saying my opinion. Even if I don't have all the information, I try to say my opinion based on the available information. And um, I think that's been good because, yeah, if you, if you don't try to ever say anything critical or offend anyone, then in, in a team environment, that's not, that's not helpful if you if, if you're a consultant and they're like oh how do we do and you're like oh everyone you know good job today unlucky like that's not helpful yeah. <laughs> so you've got to be a little bit critical
2: okay patrick i'd be remiss if i didn't ask if anyone in the boulder amateur cycling community has attempted to engage you to provide analysis <laughs> or direction for some of the events out at the valmont bike park or any of the other uh, action that's happening at that level
1: apart from spencer um no, no not too many people uh no i'm kidding no like, yeah no, patrick's
0: doing no. <laughs> a deep dive on the bus stop group ride tactics so i'm like yeah. better prepared in 2023 i'm, I'm excited about Perfect. the results
1: it's awesome. funny because like amateurs are probably more likely to tell me i don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> or be like you you don't know you don't understand this it's like okay <laughs> um but no it's a lot of people hit me up on, on Instagram more like, how can I go to world tour? How can I get to world tour? A lot of young guys. I try to be helpful with that, which is like, you know, it depends on what country you're in, what, what your financial situation is, what languages you speak. It, it Really, there is no one format. Like if you speak fluent French and you got a Schengen passport, then you go to, and you're young, you go to one of those amateur French teams. And if you perform, you will get picked up by a French world tour team. Like they will pick you up. So. That's easy, and then if you're in North America, or Australia, easy. A lot- yeah. <laughs> easy, well, no, easier com- no. Compared I mean, to being in North no, America I- or in Australia, like then you, it's a lot of tougher road.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Speak, yeah, you want to speak French? Schengen passport, I assume that's, you know, like Matteo Jorgensen. I would love. How did he up on on Movistar? I assume he just spoke Spanish from a young age, or maybe he just jumped in that team to learn Spanish. Reckon.
1: Not all the guys that are not Spanish speak Spanish that well on that team. Um, I think Mateo speaks he, – he speaks good Spanish now. Um, I, I don't know. I have to look through his results. I think he did well in L'Avenir maybe. But Movistar, for some reason, in 2020, someone decided to start signing six-foot-three people with Scandinavian names. Seriously. Norsgaard, Jorgensen, Holman – and johan Jakobs, they're not all scandinavian but like they all just started to sign all these same riders it's like but mateo is really good um i'm excited to see what he can do
0: this actually comes from your part of the world uh matt white i don't know if he pioneered this he's the first person i heard to talk about it talk about it publicly but they would build their teams bike exchange would build their grand tour teams around the height of the domestiques so the idea was you get a, a short yates behind like four six three guys sounds simple right because they're breaking more wind for you but i didn't hear anyone ever mention this before matt white did
1: i know about that i think you've seen that sort of the the bike change with nothing van hoydonk and jonas and the, the roubaix stage of the tour de france that sometimes you might want the guys to be the same size <laughs> like um <laughs> yeah so i think uh, yeah high I, th- I think about that for sprints, for for climbs. I don't know about that. Um, I guess the for sprints is really important. Yeah, it'd
0: be like you know, then especially at the zero. I Think the zero is ninety percent. You're just riding around on a flat road, or that's the way it's been the last few years. And then if you're not doing any, if you're just totally protected, then you're stronger on the climbs when the big boys have been dropped.
1: Yeah, but like, yeah, I think that that's kind of. I'm not sure there's a much benefit when you're cruising around 150 watts. Like if the guy's is 6'2 or 5'10, like I don't really see that. Um, I think it, it, it may be as important in the final, but yeah. Like for example, Jonathan Milan, I think will be, could be a super lead out because he's like 6'4, 85 kilos, aggressive, like built like a, a truck. So like it's a huge pocket behind him, like Roger Kluger. And it's sort of someone like Richese is that really unusual. Someone five foot nine who can have a long career as a last man.
0: How big is Markov? I guess he's Danish, so I assume he's tall. About six foot. Six foot, about yeah. six
1: foot, maybe. So- six one. But he's big, too. He's like 82 kilos. Like, big ass. Like, there's, he provides a good pocket. Um, same with Laporte. He's huge.
2: Patrick, have you ever heard anyone on the sports science side talk about the importance of a rider's shoulder to hip ratio for their aerodynamics?
1: Uh, oh, I'm sure like Bigam knows all about that for like TTs. For road stages, that's the thing. Cause like, is someone going to put like a 150,000 salary rider who does second last man in the lead out in a wind tunnel? Probably not. Um, maybe they are. Um, but yeah, for lead outs, I'm not sure it's that well understood the difference that a even if he's skinny and is only 77 kilos, but he's like super wide, like Danny Van again, brick Shithouse and the best last man this year, like I think there's obviously, there must be something there. Like there must be. Um, whereas like when Remco does lead outs, it looks like he's doing a good job, but he, but is he? Because, like, maybe he's putting the guys behind him. He's the other end of the spectrum from a right, fat yeah. popple, right? Maybe he's just actually putting everyone in the bin, including his own teammates.
0: I mean, sometimes they're getting gapped off of his wheel. I mean, I guess if he's so aerodynamic, it yeah. stands to reason. The gapped Lampard. That the wind is he has no draft. going behind him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interesting. So I, that's why I look at someone like Milan. I'm like, you're never going to be a top tier sprinter, but you have all the characteristics of a. Uh, a really good lead out traditionally a team will try and make you a top tier sprinter for the next five years it won't work out like case bowl. he's now 28. um how about you skip that phase and you lean into being a classics rider a top tier last man you can work on like if he leaves Bahrain his prologue should be good on a TT bike um and he might have a more fulfilling career than coming sixth and seventh in sprints
0: man yeah we're gonna have to do another podcast that that's all pretty interesting stuff we just touched on particularly by Bahrain, Bahrain's. i want to do an american i want
1: to do an american podcast i'll talk about like what's quinn simmons gonna do where's jorgensen gonna go is he gonna read like there's a whole the whole american podcast we talked about because it's like a pretty exciting time um for the really young guys
2: Will we see human powered health at the tour? Will Scott McGill be on a podium?
1: Nah, they're not going.
0: If Scott McGill no gets shot. to the tour, he might win the whole thing. If the guy
1: Anything's possible. gets a pro-
0: professional <laughs> nutritionist, he might be the best rider in the world.
1: <laughs> Anything's possible. But yeah, I think Uno X might beat them out.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you're... I, that's a team I'm actually really excited to see at the tour. Yeah. If As long as I hope I don't get kicked out of the country for saying that. But I would love to see Uno X at the tour.
1: Human Powered Health might get the Giro. I think that's really a decent chance, but because Lotto turned it down, if UNOX don't get it, then maybe they might, oh, Nabi Badiani, Israel, Israel will stump up cash that Human Powered Health won't have. I don't know.
0: And the Giro will just straight up accept cash. The Giro, this is another <laughs> podcast, like is not doing well. <laughs> like The two are starting their race in 2024 in Italy. It's like, well, that's kind of... That was,
1: step- that was announced today, right? Yeah, yeah. Stepping
0: on the Giro a little bit. Like, when you watch this pretty brutal it feels like it's still covid like there's just like no one on the
1: sides of the roads it's really depressing it's pretty brutal if you're rcs seeing like premium cities like what is it florence bologna turin mm-hmm. cities with money and they're paying so to bring the tour there for three stages that it's hurts tough. yeah
0: that's not yeah actually can't i'm sure it's happened but in the modern era i don't think i've seen a grand part in uh Kind of step on another Grand Tour's toes like that. It's kind of a power play for me. So,
1: the only, the only ones like the, the Tour starting in the Basque Country this year, but that's kind of it's the Basque but Country. It's a little bit different. It's not like starting in Madrid, you yeah. know.
0: But they own the Vuelta too, so it's like brothers, sisters. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, this is a big play. Like, uh, I wonder. Uh, maybe then you might have some spicy quotes about it. And then, I can't. Wait.
0: God, I'm never going to get to this game, but. 2024 tour ends in a time trial are you guys excited about that not excited about that do you like the last stage in paris
1: i mean it already kind of has ended in a time trial for the last few years right yeah it's just like then there's just the champs Elysees stage and then you go home now now you just go home instead of watching a sprint another day it'd be cool to see it in nice um, i hope it's not too sketchy because they had that stage one that Christoph won in 2020 was in nice it rained and that was a disaster they can't control the weather obviously but yeah i think it's quite a hard tt don't they go up i think they have a decent it's hard to have extended flat in nice yeah i think it's if you go anywhere off the coast road
0: yeah i don't it's i think it's like monaco to nice maybe and it's not along the coast so it must be really hard
1: yeah they'll they'll do they'll do some decent like six percent climbs five K I reckon there'll be a five k six percent climb in it maybe six k seven percent even so that that'll be tough but yeah i don't Because they go, the Grand Depart in Italy goes to Turin and then the next city along is like Nice. So like, where will they go? But they're finishing in Nice. So will they like loop up, I presume, to the Alps in like stage five? Because you can't, it wouldn't make sense to go up to Alsace-Lorraine where they always go and then go back down to the Alps. Maybe they will. I don't know. But that's a little bit weird.
2: It's the least watchable way to end a race and going back to your point, Patrick, about how American professional sports and others like F1, I think do a great job of foregrounding the media side of what they're doing. I think that the worst decision you could make for ending a grand tour is to have it be a time trial. I think the on a prime prime time Sunday, yeah, actually, I would say that's the second worst way you could have it end. The worst way you could have it end is have a time trial in which riders switch bikes. I love that. I think I totally it's, disagree. It's, I, I, you know, like if we if if the uh, Drive to Survive Tour de France series succeeds, which I think it will, gets more people into the sport, and they then get stuck with this bike change in a time trial in 2024, they're leaving. I, I think we're going to see some churn with those fans. <laughs>
1: I mean, the Giro TT is, there's going to be some funny bike changes in the Giro TT this year. The one is 4K is 15%, like in that TT. Maybe people will start on road bikes, honestly. like, <laughs> um, And then the Tour de France TT, that's like, there's going to be a lot of work going into figuring out that one because there's like multiple extended long, steep climbs, but none are like not one super long one. And then there's flat in between and some descents so it's like really tough to know the like we might see some real shithousery in the tour this year i think if they don't have a designated change point i think it's going to be like every team will have a different way of doing it and it could be comedic uh but i i don't think you want your main event to be comedic <laughs> <laughs> so that yeah. was just kind of your point
0: all right well thanks thanks patrick so much for for volunteering your time being so generous with it thanks andrew for joining us again and i hope everyone enjoyed our convo we'll definitely be doing this again if we can nail you down we got to do the american podcast we got to do why is bahrain why are the bikes so slow what's going on over there so
2: (laughs) i hope everyone enjoyed the
0: conversation and
1: talk to you soon thanks it was great to chat
2: yeah thanks for joining us